Thank you. Thank you. Gosh, I'll have to, I'll have to live up to that. That's a, that's a great introduction. Uh, first, let's get something very important out of the way. What are the dogs' names? Okay, were they little bitty puppies when I came and spoke to the ag sorority? That none of them were here then? They look just like them, just like them. They're, yeah, they all look the same. Well, they're adorable. Awesome. Well, thank you, Lauren, for that great introduction. That was awesome. I appreciate that. It's great to be with all of you today and some of you with some of you again today. So that was fun. So we're going to be a little bit informal, but um, as the author of a controversial book, and I'll even show you, I will, I will prove to you that I really did write a book. I'll get this book out of here because the title freaks people out. It freaks people out. They're just a little bit surprised at the title, but there's a meaning to the title. So anyway, uh, I wrote a book. It's controversial, no doubt about it. I'm a radio host, public speaker, as you heard, but I'm really privileged. That allows me to travel all over the country and speak, and that's cool, but I really like, as I was talking to Lauren, I really like being in Delaware and speaking. One of the reasons is in the front row. I'm just saying, just a little hint. So, as before we're getting started, I enjoyed talking to Lauren and some other people and seeing other people again, and one thing that I immediately observed, it was pretty easy to observe, is really what society would call a room full of winners. There's no doubt about it. Welcome, welcome. Winners. And you all are obviously in hot pursuit. You wouldn't be in this room if you weren't in hot pursuit of excellence in your life. There's no doubt about that. And you know what? There's a trait of excellence even in the dogs. Even in the dogs. There's a trait of excellence that you can see and feel. When you're in this room, you can see and feel. I heard some of you talking about physics exams and uh, engineering exams. I know, I'm sorry. I didn't want to make you throw up early in the thing. Physics, ugh. It almost makes me throw up in my mouth a little bit. But you can see and feel the excellence when you come into the room. That's obvious. That's something that's obvious. What I want to talk to you a little bit about tonight is what I mean by excellence. Different people define it different ways. And what's really most important is how I want to show you how you are about to embark on a journey that really, if you allow it, it'll empower you, give you the power, hand you the immense power to bring or contribute your own personal excellence, not only to wherever, what state you're from, not only to the United States, but to our culture, to our governance to the things that make this country tick. You have that power. Hopefully by the end of tonight, you will find that power within you. You'll realize that power. But the question is, do you find Aristotle a trustworthy source? I think so. I love his quotes. Happiness is the meaning and the purpose of life, the whole aim and end of human existence. Another good one is, excellence is never an accident. It's always the result of high intention, sincere effort, and intelligent execution. It represents the wise choice of many alternatives. What do you think he says next? Choice, not chance, determines your destiny. Choice, not chance, 
determines your destiny. To be excellent according to Aristotle, we simply, we cannot simply think excellent. We can't feel excellent. We have to act excellent. We have to act with excellence. We have to act excellently. Yet we know the action required to follow through on what we know is the hardest part. I know probably a lot of you here, no offense to anybody, but a lot of you here have probably heard a lot about intention. It's really what you intended. But intentions, despite what you've probably heard at this great institution with absolutely zero freaking parking, what in the world? I'd say that's not excellent. The parking is not excellent here. But despite what you might have heard here and in different parts of your life, intent has nothing whatsoever to do with excellence. It's doing. Doing that counts. It's the doing that counts. I'm known to say doing. I have a bunch of copyrighted little sayings, little quips, and one of them is doing is the evidence of intention. How I know what you intend is often by what you do. Do you realize what a momentous opportunity you all have in this dynamic place despite the terrible parking? Do you realize the, the awesome opportunity you have in this time and in this place in your life? How many seniors do we have in the room? Wow. <laughs> and the ones that aren't seniors are like, <laughs> how many freshmen? Well, two. <laughs> two. And they were the ones that went, Trust me, I'm going to make you feel better before the night's over with. You'll, you'll feel better. I want to ask you, do you realize the impact that you're going to have on society or that you could have on society? How about the impact that you can have on commerce, on our communities, and on our governance? Do you realize that? Bob, your head. Anybody? Do you guys see this? Or are you just so mired in the tests and trying to get your grad requirements in and make all your you know, classes on time and all that. Well, I am excited about it because I don't have to be to class on time, so not to rub it in. Maybe it's just me, but I see a whole lot of potential in a room with this much awesome in it. There's a whole lot of awesome up in this room. And I think if you make it your purpose to, honestly, you can change the world in a totally awesome way. As I said, I wrote a controversial little book a few years back in which I addressed the challenges we're facing in our great nation. How many would agree we're facing some really serious challenges in our nation? And, and the book I wrote talked about the nation and also the churches because of a culture that has come to embrace mediocrity. But what I'm privileged to be part of today really is the flip side of mediocrity. I'm privileged to be part of all of your excellence. The flip side of the coin is the opportunities and potential created by young people of vision, and that's you. Values and discipline inspired by your goals. The goals that lurk in the back of your mind and the deep recesses of your heart that maybe you haven't told, you haven't told anybody about, but they're your goals. And you operate in your life with a clear purpose and a strong foundation of education. How many are seniors that are going on to master's or other, other study? Gluttons for punishment. So my book, Excellence Kill the Church, How Mediocrity is Destroying America, that's the actual title, I swear. 
I should hold it still so you can read it. The thing I tell people, and I saw some faces go, what, when I read that title, is the same thing other people do. A lot of times uh, I've, I've handed this book to world-famous uh, ministers, people that have, you know, TV ministries, and there's, you know, I don't know how many people come, like 26, 27,000 people come every Sunday to their church, and they look at this book, and this is what they do. They go, I don't want anything to do with that book. But I tell them when they do that, when they scrunch up their face, I tell them, this book, it's the same thing I tell all of them, I'll tell you the same thing, this book is either for you because you pursue excellence, or this book is about you because you pursue mediocrity, because you embrace mediocrity. My question for you tonight is, are you living excellence? And maybe I should just define for you what I think excellence means, and I'm going to help you with that. In my professional and personal practice, my life practice, excellence, I believe, is both quantifiable objectively and very personal. It's objectively quantifiable, and it's very, very personal. You know it when you see it. Excellence. You know it when you see it, and you know it when you experience it. You also know it when you don't. The parking. The University of Delaware. Not excellent. Guys, do you know how the Secret Service, the United States Secret Service, that's who is in charge of uh, determining Counter, finding out counterfeit money, researching that. Most people are surprised when they hear that, but that's what they were originally founded for. Secret Service is part of the Department of Treasury. And so the Secret Service, one of their main jobs is to uh, stop counterfeiting and, and all of that, to, to determine what is counterfeit money, what isn't. But did you know how they train their agents to detect counterfeit money? Well, I'll tell you. They train their agents to detect fake money by making them handle millions and millions of dollars of real money. And while we're talking about money, I saw some twinkling. Are you Robert? Okay, the next person to walk in, the deal was the next person to walk in whose name wasn't Robert had to sing a song. Do you know any or off the top of your head? Your record company won't let you sing without... I dig that. I dig that. Good move. I like your shirt, by the way. So many of you, uh, you may anticipate handling millions and millions of dollars of your own money. And you know what? I'm going to tell you something. There's nothing wrong with that. You need to have millionaires in the world. You need to have people because those are the people that do what? They start businesses. They hire people. They donate huge amounts of money, like the Sharps, to have a building like this. Just saying. Here's my point. The anti-counterfeit agents, they spend literally hundreds of hours, literally hundreds of hours. And I have friends of mine that got their start in the Secret Service. They're now protecting the President and the Vice President of the United States. But they got their start in the Secret Service by sitting in a room and feeling up hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars for hundreds of hours of real money. They closely examine it. They feel it. They get blindfolded, and they rub it between their fingers. They crinkle it next to their ear. They fold it. They roll it. They crinkle it up and throw it and let it hit a table, and they listen to what that sounds like. And then they smooth it out again, and they hold it next to their ear, and they rub their fingers. They smell it. All real money. What don't they do? 
What they don't do is they don't waste their time playing with monopoly money or counterfeit money. They, they learn what authentic money is by handling lots and lots of real money. In so doing, they develop a strong sense. I would even say it's an innate, tactile, intuitive sense of what is real and what isn't. You see, this is the way it is with excellence. This is the way it is with excellence. You know it when you see it and experience it, but only if you've seen it and you've experienced it. Now look, if you spend your entire life around mediocrity, or so far you've been living a mediocre life, and it's okay to sit here tonight and say, you know what, I've, I think I've been living a mediocre life. It's okay, because that's the first step to living excellence, to recognize you're not living excellence. But if you've spent your whole life around mediocrity, or you've lived a fairly mediocre life so far, you'll never know what excellence is when you see or experience it. There's something, you have to invest in that. But I encourage you today to seek excellence out. But I don't want you to just seek it like you're trying to find a penny you dropped. I want you to seek it out like you, you had a $1,000 authentic bill and it fell out of your pocket. I want you to seek it out like that. I want to seek it out if you've held your breath for, I don't know who in here can hold their breath for three minutes. I have a friend of mine who can hold his breath for three minutes, but that first breath he takes after the three minutes, guess what? That's a big breath. That's a hunger for oxygen. That's a desperate need for oxygen. That is how you have to reach out to strive for, to dig for, to hunger, to aggressively and joyfully pursue excellence in order to find it. I think there's an unmistakable, I would call it a joy. I would call it maybe an enthusiasm for excellence. People that live with excellence, they have an enthusiasm. If, you've know, if you know people in your mind that are popping up in those little cartoon, because I can see little cartoon thought bubbles popping up, people that you maybe know of that, man, that person is truly excellent. They're sharp. They're on top of things. That may be that little cartoon bubble might be popping up. Their name or their face might be appearing to you right now. You know that they live with and generate excellence, and they have joy in doing it. Okay, so I remind you, I've held the book up a bunch of times, and I said, look, I'm not just an author. You know, I'm a speaker, right? Because I wrote the book, my name's on it, and I'm here speaking, so you know those two things. But I'm also a reverend doctor, and what that means is I have a master's and doctorate in theology, things of God, things of faith. What that also means is I'm a pastor. And I came to that uh, whole career through a very circuitous route, some of which you're going to learn about that very diverse route that I took to become this and this. It's a crazy one. It's an interesting and diverse journey. But they don't call me, suffice it to say, and you'll know more uh, by the end of tonight, the ninja pastor. They don't call me that for nothing. So as you'd imagine, I've come to learn a good bit about what the Bible has to say about excellence. And here's a spoiler alert. By the way, who in here watches Justified? You guys probably don't have any time to watch TV, do you? There's a show, Justified, that just finished. Uh, it just finale. It was finale was last night. It was awesome. It was excellent. I watched it today on my little cool iPad. So here's a spoiler alert. The Bible has a lot to say about excellence, and a lot of people are surprised to hear that, but it's true. I'll prove it. Scripture in the book of Ephesians 6, 7 and Colossians 3, 23 and 24 tell us, work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Whatever you do, work heavily as for the Lord and not for men. Follow your heart and follow it heartily with excellence. 
I believe I have found experientially that excellence and happiness are inextricably linked. They're inextricably bound together. Happiness is the joy that you feel when you've strived after your true potential. I want to ask you, who had an exam within the past few days that you have your grade for? Oh, okay, so she's making a face right off the top. Oh, I had one. But who, go ahead, we'll do it again. Who had an exam over the past five days? Okay, so you can tell the ones that killed it, right? Because you're like, yeah, I have me an exam. <laughs> and I was the boss of that exam, right? But the ones that didn't, you were like, mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some were like, mm. <laughs> But you know when you strive so hard after that exam, you want to do great, you know. And I know for a fact the one in the front row, this one here, the cute one that looks a little bit like a pretty version of me, she, I know that she's gotten a lot of A's in her lifetime. And I also know that she's always been like, Dad, I'm going to so fail this test. I'm going to fail this test, and they're going to kick me out of school, and they're probably going to make me sweep streets or something. And then, and then like a week later, I go, um, honey, how was that test? How would you do on that test? And she's all like, oh, I got a 97.8, but with extra credit, I got 192. Yeah, and she's like, yeah, yeah, I made, I won't say what she says, she made that test, but. So studies have shown that we are more successful at achieving our goals when we're happy. And I would have to say at this point, you got to be asking yourself, knowing what makes you happy, I think that points your way to excellence. You've all heard the saying, probably by now, you're all old enough to have heard the saying, look, Find a way to do what you love for a living, and you'll never have a job. You'll have a passion, but you'll never have a job. And that's true. It's absolutely true. Another scripture for you in the book of uh, Mark 8, 36 and 37. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? You've got to have balance. You've got to look at, you know, I'm not saying, you know, I, I know lots of very, very wealthy, very famous people. And I can tell you, some of them are very, very wealthy and the most miserable people on the planet. How many of you know people that have a lot? Oh, homeboy is like, mm-hmm, testify up in here. So I'll finish to see if you're the winner of Jeopardy, because this brother put his hand on the Jeopardy button. You ever seen, ooh, and then the person's like, I don't know what you was going to ask. I just totally forgot. It's out of my head. But I bet you know because you look like you know. How many of you people know people that are wealthy? They have a lot, but they're freaking miserable. And you think to yourself, you think to yourself, if I had that, I'd be ecstatic. I'd be happy every day. But if you're out of balance, it doesn't matter. And stuff really Honestly, doesn't bring happiness. There's a there's a um, Audrey Hepburn quote I'm thinking of, but I can't. It's not it's not popping in my head. An Audrey Hepburn quote that speaks to that. But it, it but she says, yeah, money can't bring money can't buy happiness, but it sure is a lot more fun, and you're dressed a lot better trying to find it. You get better seats at the theater. A life of excellence is defined by your own soul. It's defined in your own soul. It's not the same as what the world defines. 
In all fairness, it's not the same as what the world defines. An excellent life really isn't one size fits all. What one person thinks is excellent, another person might think, wow, I totally don't like that. Should I make them sing like I did the last two people? (laughs) They are totally freaking out right now. They're like, oh my God, did I have to sing? Did other people sing? No, they didn't really. They rapped, so. (laughs) No worries. Thank you for coming. I feel strongly that how we live out our life story, you know what your life story is, right? It's the script, your life story. How we redefine what is possible and how we manage the inevitable ups and downs that life will bring us. How many of in this room have had some really high ups? Yeah. How many have had some really tough downs? For sure, you know what I'm talking about. But it's how we redefine what's possible. It's how we manage the ups and downs, and I would say mostly the downs of a life fully and with excellence lived. This, my friends, is, I believe, one of the key determiners of excellence. Here's an exercise I've used personally and in my practice to help clarify the personal priorities that will result in your own personal definition of excellence. I call it 10 favorite things I love the most. Was I alone? Do I do those things alone? Or was I with people? And when is the last time I did that thing? 10 favorite things I love the most, alone or with people. This might be important because I'm repeating it. And when's the last time you did that top 10 thing? Can you guys even imagine such a list in your head? Are you thinking, what kind of list is this? Well, maybe if anybody does, I see a couple of people are, are taking notes, writing stuff down. I love that. Maybe if you have your iPad or your iPhone or whatever, or smartphone or whatever, you might want to tap this out because uh, trust me when I tell you, this is going to be important to you. I said iPhone, but you could be any smartphone. I mean, if you don't have the best phone ever, you can use whatever. It's iPhone right here. Isn't this cool little book thing? That's excellent. Be real with yourself. I'll tell you what, this list is not about what someone else might write on their list or your list. I'm talking about the list that resides in your heart. This is the list that refuses to be edited or censored by anybody, least of all you. This is the list that cannot be restrained by any sense of embarrassment. This is the list, if you dare, that must be written. This is a list that, if truly, honestly completed, will help you, truly help you to honestly define who and what you are. So, saying that goes like this if you want to know what's important to someone, look at their checking account or their credit card statements. Right? It's the truth, right? Pastors always say that to their parishioners, they always say that to the congregation because. They're thinking about the boat that they're making payments on, but they put a dollar in the collection plate. That's a smooth trick by preachers, I'm just saying. But if you were to track your spending over the last four years, what would you find that was the most important thing in your life? Would it be uh, beer and chips, nachos at the deer park? That is pretty high because they are banging. (laughs) Would it be concerts? Would it be Burger King, Doritos? Because I know Doritos are real popular up in here. (laughs) Suffice it to say, what you spend your money on or what you invest your time in is going to transition over the next eight years. 
And this will likely, and I want to say hopefully, be a dynamic and drastic transition because what you, what's important to you four years ago and up till now is going to be very, very different the next eight years. Isn't it ironic that I'm speaking about money on tax day, April 15th, 2015? Who, who had to actually write a check to the government? Oh, law, you're working, girl. You're working. I love it. I love it. You know what that means? It means you're not playing around or you don't know all the workarounds and all that stuff. You better, you better call somebody. Pay a professional. Money in politics and policies and laws regarding your money, your money, are going to now become much more important than they've ever been in your life, especially over the next eight years, especially for you seniors. Over the next eight years, it's going to be very, very important. Most of you likely haven't thought much about politics at all. In fact, the idea of politics is the farthest thing from your mind. Who, who in here is studying political science or anything like that? Awesome. I dig that. You'll see why in a minute. Listen, if you haven't thought much about politics over the past, I don't know, your, your high school and your college career so far, that is understandable because you know what? Your parents likely dealt with a lot of issues, political issues, stuff like that. Or, or hopefully they dealt with political issues for you on your behalf up until now. I would say it's probably reasonable to assume that you've likely had people in your life that handled the political stuff for you. But now you're in this stage, this very special stage in your life, politics and governance become increasingly more important and pertinent in your life. Those of you who wrote a check to the government, yeah, it's real important because there's other people, politicians, deciding what to do with guess whose money? Your money. They're deciding what to do with your money. And unless you want to cede your interest to a group of politicians who don't know you, they don't really care about you, and they don't really know what's best for this country, unless you want to cede that in your own life, give them power over your own life, I would have to say, in order to live the most excellent life you possibly can, you've got to get engaged in your own governance. You've got to get engaged. Up until now, when some of you looked at your paychecks, you see all the money. Okay, you, you, you go to work, and you know how hard you worked, and you're tired, and you finish, you're like, whew, this working business is for the birds, man. I need to hit that number. But you see all that money that comes out for FICA and SSDI and, and, and city tax and breathing tax and thinking tax and all these other taxes that they've made up. Whatever, whatever that amount is, it, it's likely seemed fairly small in comparison because you're not making a ton of money right now. So you think maybe it hasn't really impacted you that much, or so you thought. The fact is, in just a few years, and for some of you, sooner than that, you're going to be earning a lot more money than you ever thought possible. I'll tell you, let me, let me revise that statement a little bit. The ones in here that can see yourselves making $250,000 a year, you say, I can see that. I can see that. Raise your hand. Holler. That's what I'm talking about right there. Those people are going to rule the world. Those people are going to rule the world right there. Because you know what? You'll never make that if you don't see it. If you can't see it, you won't make it. Some of you will be making that amount of money and seeing all those hundreds, maybe even thousands of dollars flying out of your check every single week. You're going to find that much more egregious. You're going to find that much more theft-like. But here's the thing. You're going to be making family decisions because in eight years from now, some of you are going to have children. 
Some of you are going to be married and have children. Some of you are going to be buying a house. Some of you are going to move to a different city, city you've never lived in. Don't get me started, girl. I'm doing good so far. But you're going to be making family decisions based upon the size and impact of that number, that number that's coming out of your check. See, everybody thinks before they get to that point, they think, you know what? When I make this amount of money, I'm going to this or I'm going to that. I'm going to have this or I'm going to have that. But what they fail to realize is the really more important number is the number that never gets to your hands. And that's the taxes and that's the deductions and all that stuff. And that's all going to make a difference. You know what it's going to control? It's going to tell you whether or not you can afford to have children or not. It's going to tell you where you can send your children to school or not. It's going to tell you what home you can buy or not. How about what neighborhood you can afford? It's going to tell you what neighborhood you can afford or not. Let's get real. It's going to tell you about the food you can feed yourself and your children. It's going to affect the food you put in your own mouth and the food you put into your children's mouths or not. Look, I could go all night with that list. That number affects everything. Some of you think you, because you've chosen a career path, and, and I want to say that I honor uh, all different careers because you know what? We need it all. We need it all. For society to work, we need people with all kinds of different interests and going into different things. Some want to become doctors. Some want to be nurses. Some want to be veterinarians. Some want to be, uh, run hotel chains. Some want, to count, some want to counsel drug addicts for next to no money in terrible neighborhoods, scared they're going to get robbed every single day going to work and coming home from work. Some of you might think, look, I'm not going to make that much money, so it really doesn't matter that much to me. That number that comes out, because what are they going to take? You can't get blood from a turnip, right? But I'm here to tell you, what I'm saying is for that group, those of you who have chosen careers, that look, it's typically not historically going to pay you a whole lot of money. That, that number, that amount that comes out of your check, that's that much more important to you. Because when you don't have a lot to start with, guess what? When folks start chipping away at that not very much, it's hard to live on what's left after that. In order to live an excellent life, you have to get involved locally. I say start there. Don't start at the president race. You, regionally, nationally in politics, absolutely. But get started. Know who your elected representatives are. Even now, I would encourage you, get on the Internet. Find out who represents this district. Who controls your life right now? Because they do, and they have power. They have more power than you can imagine. Look, I'm not saying that you need to become a politician, although some of you in here might very well become politicians. Some of you might wait till you get so fed up with what's going on. The stuff that affects your life that you have, you feel like you have no control over, you're going to wait until that point, and you're going to say, you know what, I'm jumping in the ring. I can't take it one more day. Some of you might before then. But look, they work for you. The government, they're your employees. Believe it or not, how many of you here got a, gotten a parking ticket over the last 10 days? Huge number. That's a huge number. You know why you got a parking ticket? How much was your parking ticket? Somebody shout out the number. How much? Say it again. 40? Good lands, girl. Where were you parking the Taj Mahal? She was all up and handicapped. At Taj Where? 
campus parking lot. So you had a $40 ticket. How much is it to pay normally to park? 25 cents? 50 cents? Dollar? So a d- what? Who said that? <laughs> a dollar per half hour? They charge college students that? Lord, I better check and make sure I'm parked legally. I might have to get a loan before I leave out of here. That's crazy. 12 minutes for a dollar. She was sure to clarify that she does not live in the wealthy area because when I have to get a loan to pay my parking when I leave out of here, don't hit her up. Twelve minutes. How ridiculous is that? So, so how much is the fine? $25, $40? What percentage of that math was? How much? It's 8,000%. You say it's not that big of a deal. It's not that amount. That's not a huge amount of money. Are you kidding me? If you barely have any money, 8,000% fine is ridiculous. Now, I'm not advocating anarchy in parking. <laughs> but you know what? You know what, I, you know what I know about college students? They have cars. They're not usually the very nicest or best-smelling cars. I'm just saying. But you have cars. You need a place to park them. It's ridiculous to me that they would ever think of charging a college student 8,000% fine. It's egregious. And you know who decides that? Politicians. Everything the politician does, it impacts you. People of excellence know the facts. They don't operate on talking points or rumors or sound bites. They aggressively seek out facts corroborated from multiple good sources. And then they take action. You learn the facts, and then you take action. People of excellence do this even when their research requires them to change their position on a particular issue. Let me tell you, I have believed a certain way about a certain thing for a long time. And then someone sits down with me and invests in me and says, Doc, I don't know if you know this, but, and then they say, they lay it out. And then I check out what they said, and I say, wow. Wow, that's. See, I, I can't use the make or sing thing because I think you were in here before. Yeah, it takes a lot of pep out of it, a lot of pop. Could you sing? Do you know any songs? Nothing off the top of your head. She's like, I've never heard music, never. I don't listen to music. It's against my faith. Politicians can't make me listen to music either. I'm going to do what you said. I'm taking control. People of excellence readily admit when they're wrong, and they change their mind. I've had that happen in my life. I've been wrong about things. My own daughter, uh, this week, she, she's been working on me for a long time. A certain word I used, a certain word I used, that I never intended it to be offensive to anybody. But it's a word I used, and I saw a video today, and I remember my daughter dripping on me. Daddy, I wish you wouldn't use that word. Because trust me, don't get it twisted. I do use some foul language. I may be a preacher, but I haven't always been a preacher. <laughs> I've lived a little bit. So, but this particular word isn't a swear word, but you know what? It's, I'll tell you what it is. It's retarded. Well, that's so retarded. You know what I mean? And I used to use it. I, I said, man, I work with the Special Olympics. Do you know what a hugger is? Anybody have you ever worked with Special Olympics? A hugger is the person, if there's a race, you just, you're assigned to one particular athlete, and your job is to love on them. If they fall, you help them up. Some time ago, it was probably, I guess, I don't know, 20, maybe 20 years ago, I was involved on a, in a big scale at a big Special Olympics thing. And I was there, and I was assigned this one particular guy. 
And he was just the most awesome guy. He laughed all the time. He thought everything was funny, which for me is great because my jokes are terrible. But he, he was just the neatest guy. He had Down syndrome, and he and I hit it off. I mean, we just really, really hit it off. And so he starts the race, and, you know, he could barely walk, but he's in this race. He is in it to win it. And it's a whole lap. It's 400 meters. A whole lap. This guy could barely walk to that door without assistance, but he was in the race. He had his number, and I remember what he said. He tapped on his number, and he said, Mr. Sean, Mr. Sean, look, 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 1155. That's my number, 1155. I got, look, see, I'm 1155. I said, okay, buddy, we're going to get her done. We're going to get it done. We're going we're gonna to win this race. We're going to get out there. We're going we're gonna to get after it. He starts off, and he's, he means business, man. He's shaking it. to. And if he shook anymore, he'd break it. He just really, really, really was getting after it. He was into it. And he was smiling, but he was sweating. Sweat's pouring down his face. I don't know how many of you know much about people with Down syndrome? It's hard. Movement is hard for them. Controlling their bodies is hard for them. So when you purposely exert yourself, it's ten times the level of exertion for uh, people that are normally able. So I'm going with him, I'm going with him, going with him. We get to the first curve, and I never thought we'd make it that far, honestly. I didn't have faith in him, but he had faith in himself to carry us both. We get to the first curve. He stumbles a little bit, and he, I kind of catch him a little bit, and he says, whew, almost bit it. <laughs> I said, you did, buddy. You did, but you made it. Catch your breath. No, no, it's a race. It's a race. So he goes, and he's going and going and going. Trust me, the people, the other people in the race, they were long gone. By the first, by the first turn, most of the people had finished the race. But he didn't. His race wasn't finished. He kept going and kept going and kept, kept stumbling, and I would catch him. And, and just it was just, you know, a f- ten steps at a time. And it was, I couldn't hear anything else. I heard nothing. I heard nothing. And the same, it was up in New York, big stadium. I didn't hear, I couldn't hear a pin drop. So then he falls one last time, and we're probably 70 yards from the finish line. Sweat is pouring off of him more than I've ever seen a human being sweat. His hands, because it was kind of a pebbly track, his hands had so many divots in his hand, and his fingernails from grabbing to pull himself back up were bleeding. He's not quitting, he refuses to quit. I'm going to get to that finish line. So finally, after a couple of times I'm saying, buddy, you did a great job. You did a great job, but you know what? You can stop. No, no, it's a race. We finish races. He kept saying it over and over. He had in his head an attitude, despite his handicap, an attitude of excellence. You know what I noticed before long, why I couldn't hear anything? Have you ever been in a stadium where the screams and, and the applause and the cheering has been so loud, you can hear nothing but <sighs> Finally, I heard it. Finally, I looked down, and I'm on my hands and knees. I didn't even know I was on my hands and knees. I, it, it, it had escaped my mind. It escaped my notice that I'm on my hands and knees next to this little guy. He's given it all he's got. He's scooting like a baby almost crawling. His knees are bleeding. Mine are bleeding. They're burning. I'm drenched in sweat now, and he's looking at me smiling. It's a race. It's a race, Dr. Sean. It's a race. Mr. Sean, he called me. So we're scooting, scooting. We get to the line, and I look up, and there's a big screen. And blinking, four letters over my little buddy, who I was assigned just to hug, are four letters. What do you think they were? 
hero, hero, hero. He became my hero that day. You'd think that that would convince me not to use the word retarded. But my daughter dripping on me, little by little by little. And then I watched a video today, and it convinced me, you know what, I need to retire that word. Even though I would never say that word, thinking of my little buddy. I never, that would never, never make the correlation. What I'm telling you is, is sometimes when you realize you're wrong, when you get the facts, admit you're wrong and change your point of view, change your direction. Let me say this. It is true that what you spend your hard earned money on, and, and all of you work hard. I'm sure you do. Listen, jobs, uh, there's a lot of talk right now about the $15 an hour for McDonald's, you know, the McDonald's workers that are they're going to walk off the job if they don't get $15 an hour. Um, look, that's hard work. I'm not going to lie. That's hard work. But you know what you guys are in college for, and some of you are in debt for the next 20 years, literally, to do, to not make $20 an hour or $15 an hour. But they want that. That's what they want. How many have worked at McDonald's or Burger King or a fast food place? Nobody? Just you? I've worked there. I've worked there. It's hard. It's hard work. It is hard, hard work. But I want you to think about what you invest your hard-earned time and your hard-earned money. That had better be what matters most to you. And the question is, is it? Is it? Now I want to talk a little bit about money in your life. I'll be really fast with this to get to the main point. I want to talk about money in your life. I want to encourage you to do something. Look, I'm almost 50 years old, and I can tell you I wish that someone would have drilled this into my head. I wish that they would when I was your age. I want you to think about starting to save systematically every single month, 50 or or $100. How many of you are seniors? Raise your hand. Okay, so how many of you have a pretty good idea of what job you're going to have when you graduate, at least for that first summer, right? So I say start then, especially if you can live with your mom and dad. Listen, if you can live with your mom or dad, go to them and say, mom or dad, this will lower, if they charge you rent, this will lower your rent. I'm just telling you. They'll be so happy. Say, mom or dad, I want to put away $100 a month of my check. I want to start now. I'm 23, 24 years old. I want to start now. And I want to do it every month until I retire. First of all, they're going to be like, where's my child? (laughs) But do that. And honestly do that. Put that money away. And you say, well, Dr. Sean, I barely have enough money to eat. How in the world am I going to do this? Listen, if you don't start now, trust me, it will not get easier. It will not get easier. I say, look at what you've been spending your money on. Can you not find 50 even or $100 a month? Look, you probably spend that on the Deer Park nachos and beer. Just saying, putting that out there. Put it in a simple savings account. Here's some numbers for you. If you start saving at the age of 20, let's just use 20 just for fun, only 50 bucks a month, $50 a month, never increasing that amount of money each month. By the time you're 60 years old, even at simple interest rates of 6.5%, which is pretty tough nowadays because, again, of politics, this, you'd have the sum at 60 years old, you'd have the sum of 115000 $517.91. Could any of you use $115,500? Listen, trust me, when you don't have it, when you're old, you don't want to work anymore, that's a number. That's a real number to augment all the other stuff you're doing. I know it's boring as all get out, but you know what? Start saving your money. If you want to live a life of excellence, nothing will make you feel better 
than to look at that statement every month and watch it grow. I'm telling you, it'll empower you. That number would be higher. I, I, I told you about politics earlier, but monetary policy and tax legislation. Tax legislation is simply laws that tax you. That changes what you make. That affects how early you retire. That affects the life you live when you can no longer work. It's important. Do you think politics aren't important to you? You still think that? People of excellence get involved. Now let's go back to the top 10 list I was talking about. The top 10 list that demands to be fearlessly and honestly written. Don't write it if you're going to be afraid. Don't write it if you're going to be afraid of it. If you're going to write what you think somebody else would be impressed with seeing on your list, don't write it. Don't write it. And as you listen to me, maybe you'd like to tap out or scribble some items. I'm going to share my list to you. These people do not want to write the list. They're like, he is not going to make me write this list. This is top 10 list. I'm going to share my list with you. Number one, look, I hardly know y'all. This is a PG speech. I'm not telling you this one. Number one, we'll just leave that one. That's for me. Number two, spending even five minutes with my little girl. She'll always be my little girl. She don't know that, but she will be. Just five minutes. Spending time with my son. And how long ago did I do it? Too long. I just walked from her, patting on her head, and it's still too long. Trust me. You'll know that feeling one day, soon. Number three, being with my doggie today. I'm a dog lover. Have you picked that up? Here's a clue. I love my dog. She can tell you. I love my dog. And it's a great dog. Her name is Buckeye. After the Ohio State Buckeyes. Just saying. Talking with God. This is number four. Alone today. Reading and understanding. This is my list. Remember, this is my list. I'm being real with you all. Reading and understanding Scripture alone I did that with people because, hello, if you were here, I read you Scripture. And also alone, and I did that today. Reading books alone today. I have a hobby that I picked up in therapy. I'll explain more about that in a minute, but uh, archery. I freaking love archery. I'm addicted to archery. I love it. I was alone when I did it last time, and it was yesterday, and it was raining. Experiencing music, this is my number eight, experiencing music alone and with people today. See, I was playing my music so loud my neighbors could hear, so I figured they were kind of part of it. (laughs) Enjoying, this is number 10, enjoying my hobby of wildlife photography alone and far too many weeks ago. I absolutely love taking compelling photographs. I love it also a part of my therapy, which you'll know more about in a minute. I'll give you 11. This is free of charge, no cost or obligation to you. This is a bonus. Cooking or eating good food alone and with people today. How many of you like to eat good food? Do any of you like to cook? Hey, you know what? That's actually pretty good for college groups. I speak to college groups all the time. That's actually amazing. That's more than 50% are like, yes, I love to cook. Trust me, if you want to eat good food, you better either get a really great job and go buy that food or you better learn to cook. I'm just saying. It's fun. It's so much fun. How about a list of things that you used to do? A list of things that you used to enjoy doing, and for some reason now in the quiet reflection, when all you can hear is that fan blowing, you look back into your life, and you realize now there's some voids. There's some vacuums. There's some chasms. 
There's some chasms in your life that now in the quiet of this room suddenly but very obviously are absent from your life. Maybe now that you're reflecting upon what would have comprised your list even as little as a year ago. And now what you're really thinking about it, you're seeing a bunch of glaring absences even a year ago. Maybe it's a thing you used to do that you now really miss. Maybe it's a person. For some of you, this is going to really hit home. Maybe it's a person you miss. You've given it a lot of thought in the past four and a half minutes, and you realize now, wow, I really miss them. I talked about cartoon thought bubbles. You've all seen those, you know, in the cartoons. Do they have those anymore? Who in here watches cartoons? Be real. Yeah, cartoons are awesome. They're not like when I was a kid, but we had cartoon thought bubbles. Poop, they pop up over the person's head, and it says what they say. So I see a lot of those right now. I see in your little thought bubbles, some of you right now are realizing that although you were smart enough and merciful enough to yourself to eliminate some very toxic people from your life, maybe you eliminated some of very toxic hurts, habits, and habits that you have in your life. Maybe you're thinking about that, and kudos to you. There's always stuff that we need in our life, and there's always hurts, habits, and hang-ups that we need to cut out of our life. We need to trim them away. As your thought bubbles expand, but maybe you're, maybe you're remembering fondly times of shared laughter, shared sorrow, shared struggle, shared love. Maybe it was a shared tremendous effort. You guys have all done uh, workshops and labs together. Maybe you have, what do you call them, lab partners? Do you still have those? I don't know. It was a long time ago. But maybe you, you both were working on a, a really hard thing, a really challenging thing, and it ended up resulting in excellence, which now you blissfully remember. You say, oh, yeah, that was awesome. I've got to ask you, how in the world do we let such wonderful people slip away from our lives? How do we do that? Let's talk for a second about excellent relationships, just for fun. Some of the connections you've made with each other in college, you'll carry, you will carry with you the rest of your lives. But here's a really powerful thing. Some of those relationships, they'll carry you through some of the toughest times in your life. The only way they'll carry you through some of the best and toughest times in your life is if you nurture them if you manage them, if you invest in them. Let me tell you a secret. You live now in an environment, this is a fact, that in looking back, maybe you'll realize if you're a senior, you live now in an environment that is the easiest, most natural environment that will ever occur in your life to make friends, to keep friends, college. Why? You have to go to classes together. You live in dorms together. You play sports together. You're in sororities and fraternities together. You go eat together. You do a lot of things together. It's, just, it's a natural breeding ground for friendships. The fact is, it's, it's really almost effortless. It's almost effortless at this stage of life for you to make friends and to keep friends. Some of you in this time that you've invested in these last four years or three years or two years, however long you've been here, some of you have made what will truly be lifelong friends. 
One of the most consistent predictors of lifelong happiness, success, and health is, in fact, the depth and the breadth of your social relationships. The depth and the breadth of your social relationships. In fact, the fact is you get to be the curator and the cultivator. You are. You're in charge of the relationships in your life. And I'll tell you from personal experience, this is just me talking, the deep and wide relationships don't come unless you cultivate them. They don't come unless you nurture them. Sometimes if you don't cultivate and nurture those, what you thought were really great friendships, they go away. I'm a living example. I'm going to be real with you. I am a living example of somebody who's had incredible friends, especially during the time of my military service. Many of those great friends, and we went through a lot together, they reached out to me afterwards, and they said they wanted to maintain and nurture a friendship with me. And you know what? I took them for granted. I assumed they'd always be there, or perhaps maybe I minimized their importance, and, and now those friendships are distant smoke on the horizon. They're a vapor in my memory, and I'm sad about it. I'm reminded of a song I used to sing many years ago, you know, when I was a Girl Scout. Make new friends, but keep the old. One is silver and the other is gold. A circle is round. It has no end. Sing it with me if you know it. That's how long I'll be your friend. You help me and I'll help you. And together we'll see it through. At least I think that's how it went. I don't know. I did not get, I did not get the singing badge. I'm just saying. I'm putting that out there. I know you're shocked. You see, with deep friends, you'll experience together the changes that will collectively make your lives over the course of the next decade or two or five. Excellent. Let me ask you a question. This, I was real with you. Now it's your turn to be real with yourself and me. Do you remember when you were starting your freshman year at university? You just could not imagine the day when your senior year would just be how many days? Six weeks from an end. Can you freaking believe it? She's like, praise Jesus. Amen. Right? She's about to jump up in here. But do you remember when you started high school? You thought you'd be in high school forever. It's a fact. Do you remember the crazy stuff you wrote? This is, this is, this is free of charge, no cost or obligation to you. You remember the crazy stuff you wrote in other people's yearbooks? How about the, how about the stuff people wrote in your yearbook. You're the best. I know we didn't stay in touch at all during high school the way we would have liked, but stay sweet over the summer, and good luck in all that you do. You'll be great, and I know we will stay in touch forever, friends forever. See you in 31 years. <laughs> do you even remember that person? Do they remember you? Have you picked up your yearbook since you've been in college? Look, it's not that far ago, and you look at it, and you're like, I don't know who this person was, but they're like, we're best friends. I don't know. Do you recall how earth-shattering it was in high school for so-and-so, we won't say who he or she was, to not like you how you like them? Or maybe how mean your English teacher, Miss Hair Always in a Bun Ratchet, was to you? <laughs> with her real name. But then do you remember what you felt in your gut? Now it's time for me to be real with you again. Do you remember what you felt in your gut at high school graduation night? High school gradu graduation night, I was 13 days from United States Navy boot camp. 13 days later, I was in boot camp. 
in push-up positions, sweating like I've never sweated before. Orlando, Florida. Who goes, who goes to Orlando, Florida in July for boot camp? <laughs> Do you remember the harsh realization of just how fast time had flown by? Do you remember you're standing at graduation, your cap and gown is on, and you're looking around and you're fighting back tears and you really can't figure out why because some of these people you couldn't wait to get away from. (laughs) But that realization of how fast that time flew by smacked you right in the face. Do you remember standing through misty eyes in your cap and gown and do you remember the promise you made to yourself? You promised yourself that you'd never, ever make the mistake of not taking in every moment of college. You promised yourself, I will take in every moment of college and I'll savor every good relationship. I will savor every moment. I won't let this happen again. You swore to yourself in that moment you'd never again get caught up in all the busy, all the petty stuff. And miss the fact that just like high school, college would go by quickly. Most of you know now, especially those of you who are seniors, let's be honest, whether you're a freshman or a senior, you know this by now, college goes by even faster than high school. Like a vapor, some of you are already near the end of your education too quickly. And you're thinking in your little cartoon thought bubbles. I know what the thought bubble for the dog is. The thought bubble for the dog is somebody up in here has to have a T-R-E-A-T for me. <laughs> you know I knew to spell it, right? You know I knew to spell it. I'd have a new friend so fast, he'd be like, hey, I heard you mention, your speech is great, how about two? But too quickly. And then in your thought bubble, you thought, holy crap, this went far too fast. If there's one thing I've learned in this life, time flies. Time flies, and I'll tell you what, great friends are a rare commodity. In fact, I'd say that a truly good friend is priceless. In my 49 years of life, I've been so blessed to have what can only be described as game-changer friends. These game-changer friends are the real people who know me, real people who know the real me. And I can almost see the cartoon thought bubbles now above your heads popping up the names of these game-changer friends in your life. Some of them might even be in the room with you. I've been privileged to know some of you in the audience tonight for many years. And since you were young, who can guess who that is? Since you were young, I happen to know that some of your friendships, they've been fun, they've been powerful, and they've been sweet, but sometimes those friendships have been very challenging. And honestly, if we're being real, they've been exasperating at times. But what I really know is that some of your best and closest friendships that you were so sure back in the day, would absolutely last forever. Those friendships didn't even survive the semester. But conversely, some of those friendships that at first you thought were just your periphery, your B-team, your B-team friends, you all have those, you know that. Your JV for sports people. Who am I, sports people in here? Yeah, your JV people, you know. They're not varsity, they're JV, but we'll keep them around. They're working at it. Practice hard. They're, who's my theater people? Holla, your understudy. Right, they're your understudies. First, you thought they were your periphery or ancillary friends to what you thought at that time were your better and more important friendships. But now, those friendships, the B team, the JV, you thought at the time, now 
they're some of the best friends you've ever had in your life. This then marginal person is now beautifully ingrained in every fiber of your life. These people once outside your inner circle are now completely integral to who and what you've become today. Some of those friendships, let's be honest, started out a little bit sketchy. They started out a little bit, what? Maybe you didn't really like each other at first. One of my best friends I couldn't stand. Could not stand. Now best, best friends. Maybe you thought you weren't supposed to like each other. You weren't supposed to be friends, you know? So different, whatever. Until that day that you realized that even though you originally thought you'd never be friends with this or that person, there you were. There you were in which the circumstances and the environment were just perfect. The situation was just right. When your heart was in just the right place at just the right time and you chatted with each other over probably something stupid and you said to yourself, hey, self, this person, that's what I call myself, self, hey, this person is really cool. And then it just seemed like a minute later, you were going on and on like uh, you've been best friends forever. You see, it no longer mattered what you originally thought. It mattered what is. What mattered most is what is. The lesson here is open your mind and open your heart to what is possible, and in the end, valuable. I guess I want to tell you, don't discount people. Don't discount people who don't look like you, don't talk like you, or think like you. Some of your best relationships, honestly, I'm living proof of this. Some of your best, most lasting and beneficial relationships in your life will come from sources that are so unlikely and so random. Being a, a person of faith, I happen to believe God puts you in certain places and around certain people for you to enrich their lives and for them to bless your life. I believe that. Ultimately, don't discount anybody. In those cases where it was easy to become great friends, you know, it just clicked. Maybe it was through the magic wand. Maybe there's a magic wand being waved over you. You became fast friends, and you're still great friends today. But I ask you, does it normally go like that? No. Why? Because you have to invest in your friendships. If you want to live a life of excellence, you've got to invest in your friendships. But you know what else you have to do? You can't have a great friend if you don't get to know the real them. And you know what? You'll never be their great friend if they never get to know the real you. The real you, where's all my theater people? Holla. The real you sometimes require you to get to the third act in the three-act play of your life for the real you, the really real you to appear. In other words, sometimes it takes us far too long to start being real with people. But in the third act of your three-act play of your life, you suddenly became the real you, and this person saw you. When you stopped pretending, you stopped feeling like you had to look a certain way, use certain words, act a certain way. When you stopped all that and you became the real you, they saw you, they saw the real you, and they really liked you. I don't mean they really liked you anyway, but really liked you. They found that they liked the raw, real you. As a person of faith, I'm also struck by the fact that 11 years of postgraduate theological education, I failed to learn this. And the reality I failed to learn is that if I'm to live the life story that God has for me to live, I got to hand him the pen. I got to hand him the pen. I got to trust him 
My mission, however, is to live that life story with excellence, the very best that I can. It's this way with relationships sometimes. This beautiful relationship just happens because you're the person with whom you're the closest, so blissfully the closest, pops into your life and what appears to be, in hindsight, an effortless, magical moment. Now you live out your life enjoying the the best events of life, the toughest events of life, the worst things ever in your life, the things that change your life in an instant, you will live out with them. That person will be with you whether from near or from far. You see, you're all together right now. But soon, most of you are going to be in totally different states. Some of you will be in different countries. Some of you are going to be so far away but they're such great friends that you'll never feel disconnected. No matter how many miles physically separate, you'll never feel as though they're more than just a text away, more than just a FaceTime away, more than just a Skype away. Let me say this. Technology, isn't it wonderful? There's nothing I love more than face-to-face, but let me tell you, a very close second is FaceTime and Skype or a text or a call. But you know what? The glaring truth is very few of us voluntary. We don't don't want to face this truth. We really don't. But the fact is, is time is precious. It's totally precious. On that, most of us agree, right? We can all agree to that. We can all say time is precious because, oh, yes, time is precious. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know? But what we subconsciously reject is that the unchangeable fact that time is also very short. Oh, holla, I was going to take that. You know I was. You know I was going to take that bad longboard. That was, I couldn't even stand on it, so let's be honest. But it would look cool up in my room, you know? Statistics tell us there's what, maybe. 40 people, 30, 40 people in this room? Maybe. Maybe less than that. Let's say if there was 40 people. In just 10 years, this is what the statistics tell us. In 10 years, 11 of you will have lived out your dash. You'll be, you will have completed your dash. You'll be gone, and somebody will be remembering you fondly, and maybe somebody won't be remembering you at all. That's reality. That's statistics. I'll tell you this, and I've talked a lot about her tonight pretty much the thing I talk about the most. As a daddy of a wonderful young lady about to move on to veterinary medical school in Georgia, I'll confess to you that most other parents will tell you this. I'm telling you, your parents will tell you. Most other parents will tell you. It seems like only yesterday this little girl was just a little fuzzy-headed blob of protoplasm, cute littleness in my lap. I was holding like this because I was afraid I'd break her. And then all of a sudden, I was pushing her on the swing, much higher than a dad should ever push their child. And then when she was old enough, I very irresponsibly, we played this little game where you swing as high as you can go, and then you see how if you can swing high enough to make the the ropes or the chains go slack, and then you slam down and laugh giddily. And then, and then, because I'm this bad of a dad, we eventually migrated to, how high can you be when you jump off? <laughs> I'm sorry. 
I'll pay for counseling. <laughs> Although she was brave, she, nothing scared her. <laughs> like, no! As she was flying through the air. I see some kind of thought bubbles popping up in your, right above you right now. I see you maybe remembering some things like that, sometimes like that. But what seems like a flash in a fleeting moment, all of a sudden my little girl is all grown up. She's ready to graduate and go to the far, far away land in Georgia, which takes exactly 13 hours and five minutes by my truck, driving at 65 miles per hour where permitted by law. Don't ask me how I know. I said all this to say this. I said all that to say this. In your lives as young, bless you, as young and as wise as y'all are, there are people who will one day be in your top ten. Or maybe they'll be back in your top ten. I would ask you to consider something. God bless you. I would ask you to consider something. Maybe it's your parents. Did you know that right now, probably, your parents are sitting at home and they're wishing you'd text them back or call them, God bless you? Do you know they're probably thinking about you right now? Do you know that's how it's going to be for the rest of your life? As long as they're alive, they're going to be thinking of you. They're going to be worried about you. I want to remind you that your parents have a dash too. Here's a, let me share this list with you. Particularly good, God bless you again, top 10 list. On her top 10 list is a good allergist. Here's a, here's a good top 10 list somebody shared with me today before I came here to this talk. Ironically, being with mm, now. I don't know what that is. I have no clue. College students are like, yeah, we know what it is. Mm -hmm. You better not know what it is. Being with, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not kidding. I can't lie. Being with. This, is their, this, this person is number two, being with so-and-so yesterday. The first two, the first two go to the same person. Let me give you a free at no cost or obligation to you tip. Here's a tip for you. Right here, right now, you can write this down. This will change your life. If there's a person who for right now, for, for all the right reasons, is in your number one and your number two spot of your top ten list, they occupy of a top ten list fully 20%. Of your entire list, here's a note to self. Hang on to this person. Make sure they know how important they are to you. Tell them. Don't let another day go by. Don't let another moment go by without telling them. They have a dash. You have a dash. And none of us know the moment our dashes will close. This is, this is her number three. Spending time with God. Hmm. Asking God a question and having him show me the answer, knowing he showed me alone and today. First cup of good coffee. See, your college students, you probably don't drink good coffee because it's like I got $3 and that's got to last me. I got to have lunch and dinner. Yeah. Here's number five. Reading a book that teaches me something new or makes me understand or feel something more deeply alone and today. Number six. Encouraging someone or making them laugh with someone Today, number seven, some of you can identify. God bless you. Being pampered, massaged, bath, hair, nails, facial, good smells, alone, not too long ago or too long ago. 
Number eight, exercising while listening to music alone but with a gym full of people, Friday. Number nine, making something art that is lovely or special and sending it out to the world, talking about art with someone who feels it, alone and with people, not often enough. Number 10, it's amazing, the the correlation here, and we're not related in any way. A lovely, healthy meal made with care and attention, eaten with someone who appreciates yesterday. You see, happiness comes from your pursuit of excellence, and only you can pursue it. Happiness comes from the process. Happiness comes from the journey to excellence. Happiness comes from living your list. Happiness is no accident. Happiness comes from you creating a vibrant and peaceful dash. You're living your dash right now. How many of you know what your dash is? I'm going to tell you. You're on it. I knew you were. But let me say this first. You aren't preparing to live your dash. You know, someday when this or that happens, I'll begin to live my dash. I'm going to talk about her while she's gone. You know I will. You know I will. She knows I will too. No, my friends, it's not, you're not preparing one day to live your dash. You're living your dash right now. And what is your dash? I'm going to tell you. To define and illustrate, let me say this. It's going to be kind of weird for you unless you watch The Walking Dead, in which case it won't be weird at all. I, I encourage you to take a little field trip so you understand what your dash is. Take a field trip. Go to a cemetery, a cemetery with headstones, gravestones. Just a quick walk through, not at midnight, because don't be creepy. (laughs) I want you to look at the dashes. I want you to look at an entire graveyard full of people who thought they had all the time in the world. Full of people, many of whom totally disregarded their top ten list. Maybe they didn't even have one. Maybe they didn't have a list. Maybe what mattered most in their lives before the close of their dash came. Maybe they were just so busy dealing with the moment by moment in their life. They never even could make a dash or make a list, top ten list. They were just getting by. The headstones that you'll see in front of you include two dates and a dash. This person for whom someone laments their passing was born on a date. For me, my date of birth or front end of my dash was September 23rd, 1965. Who in here is born on September 23rd? Nobody. Not even somebody would lie about it. Every time I give, this, I give a similar speech uh, different places at colleges, there's always somebody that lies. This is the most honest university group ever because they're always because they think, oh, I'm going to get something. But you're not. I'm just going to say holler, September 23rd. The back end of my dash or the date that I very nearly died was April 12, 2012, three years and three days ago. At 6.18 p.m. on a peaceful Thursday evening, a speeding car driven by a 19-year-old high school senior crossed 48 feet of northbound lanes, hit a huge raised concrete median, and she lived this with me, concrete median at 109 miles per hour, and three southbound lanes to strike me head-on at 92 miles per hour. I was driving 55 miles per hour, hit me head on. I decelerated from 51 miles per hour to zero in seven feet in the distance from me to Lily. As I, a six foot three inch tall and 255 pound man, I was trapped in eight inches of space in the car. The front wheel was behind my feet. 
I bent the steering wheel with my face. I was thought to be dead by many at the crash. As I regained consciousness, I struggled to breathe, and I was in an extraordinary amount of pain. As I was still, because I knew not to thrash around in the vehicles, doing what I did, the smell of fire, because the other vehicle was totally engulfed in flame, only feet from me. I actually, my left side of my face was red from the flame. I lamented the absence of several things in my life. While I waited to die, I prayed three prayers. I prayed first a prayer of contrition. I asked God for forgiveness for my hurts, habits, and my hang-ups. The next prayer I prayed was a prayer of thankfulness that none of my family or my dear dog was in my car. The last prayer I quickly prayed was a prayer of petition for the people in the striking vehicle. You see, I knew as fast as they hit me, somebody in that other vehicle was likely to have died, and they did. I thought about my dash. I lamented the time I didn't spend with my precious daughter. I lamented the lessons I hadn't taught my son. As I waited to die, I lamented the time I hadn't spent truly living my list. If these were the last moments of my life, I thought of my dash. You see, a 17-year-old passenger in the other vehicle, who I knew well and loved, his name was Andre Smith. I'd known him for three years. He was the one that was killed in the other vehicle that struck me. We're neighbors. That day, a 17-year-old passenger closed his dash. A 17-year-long dash and not a second more. While I was trapped in the car for 39 minutes while they were cutting the left side of the car off so they could get me out, I thought of the words of the Jewish philosopher Abraham Heschel. He said this, something sacred hangs in the balance of every moment. What that meant to me, and it means even more to me today, is savor every moment. Because our moments end. Make the moments count. Make your moments excellent. Okay, we'll go back to the cemetery. And as you imagine yourself in this cemetery, the place nobody wants to go when they're alive, imagine the rows and rows of grave markers, the tombstones. Imagine the lives, the hopes and the sorrows buried there. As you're envisioning your headstone, your headstone in that graveyard right now, I want you to see your born date, the date you were born. I want you to just do this. It's not going to hurt you to do. It's not going to be embarrassing. When I count to three, I want you to say your date of birth. One, two, three. Awesome. That was your born this day. Then the dash, the in-between. Ask yourself as you're looking at your at your own gravestone, was it a dash of excellence? Was it a dash of nothing but causing grief and sorrow and stress and trauma in other people's lives, maybe in your own life? Was it a dash of joy? Was your dash a dash of warm connections with good people? Was your dash a dash of doing something truly worthwhile? The great Teddy Roosevelt is often quoted to say, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points 
out how the strong man stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. I'm encouraging you now, if I can encourage you to do anything, don't be a timid soul. Lose by trying hard to win. Know victory. Learn from your defeats. Know your victory. As you're there in the cemetery and you're looking at the dashes on the tombstones, ask yourself, was it a dash of nothing but a dash of I wish or I could have? I could have been, I should have been. Or is your dash, as you're looking above your own gravestone, is your dash a dash of little or no regret? Was it a dash of bold, contemplative pursuit of excellence in your life? The date after the dash, that's when our opportunity to live with excellence while here on earth is over. If I can encourage you to do anything, be memorable. I'm often quoted as saying, you cannot unsee certain things. It is equally true that you cannot unfeel certain things. When one sees and one feels something exquisite, one prays to always remember. Here's a Calvin Coolidge quote that I've loved but has haunted me for the last 20 years. Whenever I'm thinking of giving up or accepting mediocrity, this quote haunts me with its truth. Nothing in this world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful people with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. The slogan, press on, has solved and always will solve the problems of human race, of the human race. Friends, with all the challenges that are surely coming for you in your life, and I hate to tell you, there's going to be huge challenges. Some of you, as I look in this room, some of you have survived your parents' divorce. Some of you have survived abuse. Some of you have survived abuse yourself. Some of you have survived the loss of a parent. Some of you have survived the loss of a best friend. Some of you have dealt with terrible illness. Some of you have indeed encountered great challenges in your life thus far. But I'm here to tell you as a guy who's lived a little bit, tougher stuff is coming. Take it from a guy who's lucky to be alive. For me, every day is an intense struggle just to live. I implore you, press on. Only you can press on for you. Only you can press on and be excellent in the big things and the little things. Folks, only you can ensure you live a memorable, excellent life. I'm known to say little things don't mean a lot. Little things mean everything. Now I ask you, whose top ten list are you on? Do you wonder? Am I on anybody's top ten list? Let me say this and then I'll close. 
Maybe some of you have heard this story. It's an absolutely true story. There was a school teacher. How many in here are education majors? You're going to be a school teacher. None. Not one. That's, that's incredible. I've never, I don't run across that very often. I'm like, them kids can learn for themselves. They have books. <laughs> so there's this teacher, and this wasn't that long ago. She's a teacher in Wisconsin, I believe it is, and she, she teaches uh, middle school. And the middle schoolers come in for class first day of school, and, and there are no desks in the room, not one single desk. The kids are all walking in going, well, we usually have desks up in here. We usually have a place to put our erasers and our pencils and our cool markers and our color. You know, nothing. There's nothing there. The room is empty. And the teacher says to them, how do you go about deserving your desk? How do you go about earning your desk? And some of the really smart kids, you know, the kiss butts who bring an apple the first day of school, they say, well, teacher, it's by behaving well and doing all of our work. Nope, not it. Throughout the day, they have all kinds of different reasons and excuses. Well, if I do this, then I get that. Because we're nice, because we're quiet, we quiet down when you say. All kinds of things. Bless you. Bless you again. She said, the teacher told them, you know what, if you guess, then you get your desk back. You get your desk. You can have them the rest of the year. If you can guess, what did you do to deserve the desk? What did you do to earn the desk? By the end of the day, nobody had thought of it. The next day, the students come in, and the room is empty again. Fully and completely empty. There's nobody. There's, there's no desk in the room. There's no evidence of a desk in the room. Just the teacher. The kids come in, they're like, man, this is weird. This is going to be a long year. It's tough to write standing up. And she said, yesterday I, I asked you, what did you do to deserve? What did you do to earn at your desk? And nobody had the right answer. Today I'm going to give you the right answer. There were 27 students in the class. And one by one, uniformed combat veterans, each one, some of whom had lost a limb, in combat, fighting for our freedom, carried a desk in, placed it perfectly in front of each child until all 27 desks, 27 combat veterans, some of whom had given their limbs, had placed a desk, and she had them stand by the desk. And she said, children, look at these men and women in uniform. You've never deserved this desk. They did the work for you, fighting for freedom. This has nothing to do with my speech other than to say this in closing. All around you are lots of people who went to a far-off land and gave everything they had. Some of them lost almost everything. Some of them lost their dear friends. There are many people that you know that live on your block, maybe in your dorm on your hall, that have a parent or a brother or an uncle who's not here anymore because they answered the call. If you want to live a life of excellence, I'm going to encourage you right now, seek that person out and thank them for their sacrifice. Thank you for your attention. I appreciate it.